This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the show. In today's episode, we talk all about short-term rentals. I was going back through the directory and I noticed that we hadn't had an episode on short-term rentals. And I brought in a guest named Cale Delaney, and he's going to talk to us about short-term rentals. He's got five of them, uh, five short-term and five long-term, but specifically the short-term, he's got one in Florida and four in the Smoky Mountains. And he's been very happy with the cash flow. It's allowed him to leave his day job. And so that's what we want for you guys is to learn about these different strategies so you can figure out the most quickest way to get to financial freedom for you. And uh, before all that though, here's today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is count on vacancies. So this time of year, especially for me in the long-term rental space, I'm seeing it's harder to fill units with quality tenants because fewer people are moving with the cold weather and everything. But that doesn't mean that we cut corners or abandon our tenant qualifying criteria in this time. We still have to stick to our criteria. And if a rental sits vacant for one, even two months, then that's an okay price to pay if it means you avoid getting in a poor tenant. And so we want to continue to look for those high quality tenants. Now on the short-term side, Kale can talk about this during the episode, but uh, he does account for vacancies. And actually it's a lot higher percentage of the revenue for short-term rentals because he knows that during certain times of the year, there's no tourists in that area. But the increased revenue and cash flow more than offsets that increased uh, vacancy rate. So bottom line is make sure you are counting on vacancies, especially this time of year. So with all that being said, here's today's guest talking all about his short-term rental experience, Kale Delaney. Welcome to the show, Kale. How are you today? I'm doing well, Dalen. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. I'm glad to have you on because first off, tell the listeners, when was your aha moment in real estate? I got a chance to read your bio and it was just really impressive, blew me away. But tell the listeners when you stumbled upon real estate and when you decided this is the path for me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's funny. I was kind of thinking about things today and, you know, you hear oftentimes with people of how the point or the from point A to point B in their lives, it's not a straight line. It's a zigzag. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's pretty much exactly what's happened with me too. I'm a small town guy from New Hampshire. That's where I grew up. You know, I, I lived in around in a various towns of, you know, a few thousand people if that. And when I was 18, I moved down to South Florida uh, for college, uh, the University of Miami, got a scholarship down there and uh, went to school for engineering. Found out quickly that's that's not really what I wanted to do. You know, I, I didn't have a passion for it. It was just kind of a, a logical degree to do. You know, I was good in school. I enjoyed math and science. There you go. Go take engineering. Right. So that's kind of what I did. And I found out I didn't like it right through internships. And so my senior year in college, I actually kind of got the bug a little bit for real estate. And it wasn't really very formed at that time of what I was interested in. It was really just an idea of if I want to be wealthy, why don't I start looking at what wealthy people do? Right. And so 
I got involved with a, a commercial real estate investment brokerage firm down in Miami, Florida. And so I started working part-time my, my senior year in college. And then once I graduated, went full-time on uh, being a, a, an investment broker with them. And I sold uh, small multifamily apartments in a kind of an exclusive area in South Florida and did a little bit of retail as well out of state. And I enjoyed it. It was a good experience. It was just very, very terrible timing. You know, it's 2006 to 2008, and we all know what happened then. And so once the market started drying up, I knew I didn't want to stick with the brokerage part, right? I did not enjoy cold calls or, you know, so much, so much wasted time that you have with people, you know, going on meetings with people that are just kind of tire kickers. And it it just was not, it was clear that I, I didn't want to go that direction. Right. And so I kind of put things on the back burner for, for a long time with real estate at that point, you know, I, I got some good experience. I, I really learned a lot, but still, I think I was just kind of too young and naive and it was just like, okay, I just need to get a job and start making some money. Right. So I decided to get into construction management. It was again, just kind of a logical choice based on my degree, friends that I had graduated with that were doing that. And so that's kind of what I've been doing for the past 13 years is, is construction management. Um, and it really was about two years ago. Uh, well, yeah, almost two years, a year and a half, uh, ago that I kind of had the, the light bulb moment and just went through a lot of, a lot of personal changes in my life. I got married about two years ago or a little over two years ago. My wife had two, uh, two kids already from a previous marriage. And then we had a, a son of our own uh, shortly after we got married. So within a period of the year and a half or two years uh, that my wife and I were you know, dating and then getting married, it was going from single to a family of five. And all of a sudden there's all these different responsibilities and things you got to start thinking about. And especially when the young one was born, the baby, it just really kind of put me in that position of I've got to figure something else out. Like this, I, I can't, I can't see myself working for another 30 years doing what I'm doing just to maybe try to save enough money to retire off and, and survive. Now I've got to think about kids. I've got to think about all this stuff. And so I just, again, I didn't really know exactly how I was going to get to that path, but I knew something needed to change. And so I just started kind of digging in and, and I started thinking again, Maybe I should look into the real estate, you know, just going back to when I had uh, worked in it those those years past. And uh, so I started listening to podcasts, reading books and read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I mean, I think 99 percent of people, <laughs> you know, that's kind of their their uh, kickoff moment there. And that's what it was for me. It was really kind of like the nail in the coffin of really solidifying and clarifying a vision forward. Kind of once I read that book it made it just really instantly clear as to this is what I've been doing wrong all these years. This is what I need to do, you know, business investing. This is what I need to do to actually create wealth, right? Not for somebody else, but for me and my family. And so once I read that book, uh, it just, like I said, really just solidified a vision for me. And then I just, I said, real estate's where it's going to be. I don't know again, exactly what type of real estate, but it's going to be real estate. And from there, I just dug in. I mean, I literally, from the day I made that decision, which was in, I don't know exactly what day, but it was in January of 2020. And then I kind of had that that real final aha moment. And from that day forward, I literally 
just dug in and started researching the market, walking the market that I picked, you know, sending out offers, you know, on Zillow, MLS daily, and just doing all the steps that everybody says to do uh, until I landed my first deal. That's a very long winded (laughs) answer to that, but it was really that about a year and a half ago or so, a little over a year and a half ago, where I really solidified the vision and decided to take action. And, and from there, it's kind of been, you know, full steam ahead. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank, thanks for sharing that. I had a similar start where when I got out of, uh, well, I was still in high school and I got interested in engineering. Yeah. Uh, and admittedly, it was for nothing else than the high salary. And so uh, I went to camps. I actually got a decent scholarship to go to this highly esteemed engineering school. And I got to get into the coursework and just, it wasn't the right fit for me. Right. And so you'll find out pretty quickly if something's not the right fit. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's good that you, you got into the real estate brokerage early on and then you knew that that wasn't the right thing. So you pivoted and now you obviously that served its purpose for a while. And now you're right. obviously trying to transition out of that into more real estate investing full time. Right. So talk about that first deal you did. I mean, was that, you found on the MLS or some other yeah. conventional purposes. And then we're going to dive into the later in the show, short-term rentals in your portfolio. Right. Now was that was short-term rentals on your mind at that stage? Or were you just thinking like, get a rental, get a, or get a flip? What was on your mind going through that first deal? Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the first deal was actually a, a long-term, um, but I did have in the back of my mind at that point that, you know, I wanted to get into short-term rentals at some point. And so when I was underwriting my deals that I was looking at, I was always putting in there, you know, I was doing a, a pro forma as a long-term and a pro forma as a short-term as well. And frankly, I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have the experience or the knowledge to really know true data. And I, I didn't really even know about Air DNA and all these other resources that are out there now for, for finding it. So I was kind of making some real guesstimates with my, my, you know, short-term pro formas. Uh, but of course they were much, you know, much higher revenue than the long terms. And so it was kind of, it, it, we went into it with the thought of maybe over one to two years, we try to convert some of the long terms uh, into short terms, but it was really just kind of a, an afterthought, you know, the main goal was let's get, let's get some deals, you know, under the belt, let's get some, let's get them stabilized let's see how they perform and kind of take it from there. So it was, things moved really, really fast. And I just, I, I was constantly on an evolution, I think in my, in my real estate journey, you know, just because things move so fast, it was okay. You know, I, I want to do, or I didn't want to do single family homes. You know, I, I, I kind of knew that right off the top. I said, let me look into small multifamily. Right. And so that's kind of what I went into first off which was uh, a fourplex, which was the first deal. And it was local, you know, uh, I didn't even want to consider out of state or out of town or anything like that. Just wanted something close by that I thought would be easier. But yeah, just kind of had a little bit of a longer term goal or an idea at least of, you know, maybe we'll get into short term. I know that everyone says the revenue is better that way, but let's get something, start small, stabilize it and kind of see see where it goes from there, you know? Right. So it started out as a... Um... A long-term rental. Was this a house hack or was this strictly a fourplex investment? You were going to rent out all four units. This was strictly a fourplex investment. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so I wanted, I have a lot of questions with the uh, conversion because how do you convert a fourplex or any multifamily for that matter to a short-term 
rental? Like, are there people willing to do a short-term rent on a multifamily building? Yeah. So it was kind of an experiment. The opportunity presented itself. So it's, it's four units. There's one studio, two, one bedrooms and a two bedroom. And the, the layout of the property is it's actually like two duplexes on, on a property, one in front kind of facing the street and one in back. And we had a tenant that the one in the front, which happened to be the larger two bedroom, you know, faced the street. It was the nicest of the four units, the biggest, et cetera. They canceled their lease early. And this was right after, uh, yeah, this was a month after, not even a month after I had just gotten my first true short-term rental cabin in the Smokies uh, up and running. And even in that very short time, I saw how amazing the potential was. And so when they canceled that lease early, I said, all right, you know, let's, let's take this opportunity. Let's give it a try. You know, we can always go back to a long-term rental. If this doesn't work out, let's give this a shot. And the unit wasn't in decent enough shape that, you know, we didn't have to do any remodeling or anything like that. We just, we furnished it out, decorated it nicely, and then put it up on an Airbnb in Verbo. And I mean, it was just, uh, it's kind of funny, especially when, with any short-term rental, it's just kind of how the algorithms work with Airbnb and Verbo. It's like when you first list a property and they do it on, they, I know they do it on purpose. I mean, psychologically, it's like, it's addicting because they boost you in their search rank. And so, so much when you first list a property that literally within hours, you've got bookings and you're just like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, this is incredible. <laughs> you know, I just made in, in three hours, what I, what I make in a month, you know, for a, for a long-term rental. So it's kind of funny how they do that, but that's how it went. We spent some time just decorating it, furnishing it, listed it, like literally within hours had two weeks booked and it was making more than it was going to make as a, as a long-term rental right off the bat. Right. So I'm interested to hear how you chose your market because you said earlier that, well, it was just close to you, but now you've spread out to the Smokies. So how do you determine a market if you're if you're just a beginner looking in? How do you determine that? Are you looking at rents, competition, or like how do you underwrite that? Right. It all depends. I mean, there's a lot of factors. It, 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 it can be a very personal decision or it can be a very analytical decision, right? When I was looking initially and when I chose that local market, first off, I said, it's got to be local just because again, just kind of, just kind of that I'm brand new. You have those fears, you're nervous. How, how in the heck would I do something out of state? You know, you just don't even, I didn't even want to think about that, but, and we'll touch on it later, you know, I'm sure, but going back now, I mean, the out of state is so much easier than, than the local. So yeah, I just said, I want to go local. I want something that's going to be again, small multifamily that, you know, in the future would have some, some short-term potential. And so I just kind of, you know, started thinking and looking around my, my area and there's a little beach town, 20 minutes or so from me. It's not directly on the beach. It's about a mile or so inland from the beach. It's kind of like a little artsy, they call it like little Key West even. It's very kind of artsy, quirky little area, but it's all small multifamilies, you know, duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes. And there was already a bit of an established Airbnb market or short-term market, not humongous, but you know, there's a handful of properties there that, that people do it. And so I just kind of picked it, you know, I said that, that looks, that looks like it kind of checks the boxes and picked it and just started digging in. So that's kind of how I went with that way. As far as once I really made the decision uh, to go full in on, on short-term rentals, that one was 
it's a little bit by chance in that it was actually another podcast. I was listening to the, the, I'm sure you're familiar with the bigger pockets, you know, real estate rookie podcast. Uh, I happened to listen to an episode and it's actually, gosh, almost a year ago to the day. I happened to be listening to an episode where they were talking about short-term rentals in the Smoky Mountains. And it just like, again, a light bulb just went off like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. And I didn't even know where the Smoky Mountains were. (laughs) So after that, after I listened to it, I literally Google mapped it and saw where it was. It was within, within relative driving distance, you know, from us and packed up the entire family. We even had our two, uh, uh, a niece and nephew staying with us at the time. So like a minivan full of seven people and luggage, threw them all in the car, drove up, you know, 16 hours to the Smoky Mountains and uh, just started checking out the market, met with realtors and again, just kind of going all in, starting looking at all the revenue, the prices and just digging in real deep. Um, So again, it was just kind of one of those, you hear people say success leaves clues. Mm-hmm. And so once I heard that, once I heard the the potential of that market, I mean, I just took the action of, you know, let's go out there, let's look at it, let's start digging in and seeing if this makes sense or not. Right. And even though you were out of state, you made that trip. I think that's really important to, right. to learn the local, local market there. And if nothing else, make a vacation out of it, right? You already got the kids and the wife. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. And hiking trip. Right. We did, we did get in some hiking there too. <laughs> uh, and I, I agree. I think it's important and, and, you know, other people have different opinions as to whether you need to visit the area or, or not. You know, technically you don't need to, you can get all the information you, you need from people there. But for me, at least, you know, it's just kind of seeing it and touching it, feeling it, getting that experience, you know, even if it's just for a few days, um, just instilled a whole lot more confidence than just picking a point on a map, you know, and and looking at listings online. So. Sure. So once you've found a listing, I assume you were talking to, you said realtors and you found some listings. Most of these properties I would imagine don't come cheap because they're all, they're nice. They're in a great location and the, and the builders, the owners know that people come in and, and are going to make a killing off of these so they can jack up the price. Yeah. How did you, did you just pay fair market value for these uh, properties or the first one you had? Yeah. So that's, that is very true. <laughs> the Smokies market in particular is, is absolutely insane. And it's, it's only gotten more insane even this past year. <clears throat> but um, yeah, when I first started looking at the listings, I mean, yeah, I, I had sticker shock big time, <laughs> you know, compared to, I mean, even the four unit property that I bought locally, you know, just one cabin is, you know, 50% or more, you know, costly than than what I paid for these four units here, more than double what I have in my own house that I live in. And so, yeah, I got big sticker shock when I first started looking at this and I was like, oh my goodness, this is, I don't know, this this is a little scary, frankly. Um, And then, yeah, you talk with the real, you know, your realtor and you start hearing how everything that's being sold is, you know, as soon as it comes on the market, it's getting multiple offers. Things are going for way above asking price. And so I kind of struggled with it. Uh, at first I really did. You know, when I came back from that trip, you know, I, I knew I wanted to get into that market. I knew I wanted to get into short-term rentals. 
I just need to figure out how, because again, these prices are super high. This atmosphere is super competitive. Like I don't like paying more than somebody's asking, <laughs> you know, if anything, I want to pay less, like, isn't that the whole point? Right. Um, and so it was about, and it sounds like a short period of time, but for me, it like, and for that market, it's almost like an eternity. Like it was about three weeks that I kind of just pondering and debating and just really looking at tons of listings every single day, analyzing deals every single day. And I knew, and I quickly saw that as soon as these properties come on the market, I mean, it's like a feeding frenzy. I mean, it'll come on and within a day, two days, I mean, they've got multiple offers. They're already, they've already got offers, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% above asking price. And if you try to get into that game, you know, you got to be prepared to pay top dollar or really know what your limit is. Cause you know, it's easy to get into that, get the emotional aspect into it of, well, I'm not going to lose this deal. Right. Fine. I'll pay this much. And so I didn't want to get into that game. And so I said, you know what, let me just, let me take a look at some stuff that's been sitting on the market for a little bit. Um, and you know, there's some cabins that I, I saw there and I check with my realtor. I'd be like, Hey, this one kind of looks nice. You know, it's been on the market for a few weeks. What's going on. And most of them came back and that there's some, you know, there's some big issue with them. They need tons and tons of work that the seller is not going to offer anything for you take it or leave it. Or, you know, there's something wrong with 90% of them. Right. And there was one that, that I saw that again, had been on the market for, I think about three weeks or so brought it up to my realtor. He's like, huh? I mean, I don't know. That one uh, looks pretty decent. I haven't heard anything on it. Let me check it out. And so he went and checked it out, talked with the listing agent, no big red flags, no real apparent reason why it was sitting on the market still. And even then I kind of debated on it because again, it was a big ticket. They were asking 700,000 for it. And so I, I still kind of sat on it and I just I was to the point where I was like, man, I want this property so badly. Like, I really want this property, but that's a lot of money. I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to let it be. And if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. And listening to your, your podcast, you know, I know you're, you're a man of faith and, uh, you know, myself as well. And so I was, I was praying about it and I just said, look, you know, Lord, if this is, if this is the direction you want me to go, if this is the property that's meant to be, I'm confident that it'll happen. If it's not help me with being discouraged and keep me in the game. And so I was like, I'm just going to let it sit for a week. And if it's still available, I'll make an offer. And so that's what I did. I let it sit. It was still available. I made them an offer at 650 and they accepted. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I guess it's starting. <laughs> and, you know, so that that's how I got that, that first one. And it just really worked out very well. And again, you know, I, I feel it kind of happened for a reason, but that family that owned that one, they actually had two cabins next door to it that they were looking to sell as well. And so we found that out during the, while we were under contract on this first one. And so after we closed, we immediately negotiated with them on these other two and got those under contract and closed. So then like three, four months, you know, we all of a sudden have three cabins and, <laughs> and then kind of repeated that for the, the fourth one, which we have four now did that same thing. Just kind of looked at ones that have been on the market, found one that, that looked good, made an offer, they accepted it and lo and behold. So that's been my, my strategy and it's worked out so far. I think it's getting harder and harder though, as the market gets crazier and crazier. 
That's very exciting. You know, it's just goes to show that you can make offers on properties that are sitting on the market for a while. And that can be a great strategy. Yeah. And I bet you never would have thought you were going to get a, a property under the list price in right. that sort of competition, but you did because right. you found a way. And then that it's just amazing that that then opened the door to two more. Right. <laughs> and, and now you've got four. Yeah. So how did you finance those? Cause a lot of people would probably ask, 20% down on 700,000. That's a lot. Or so were you using the typical 20% or could you do 10% or what financing strategy did you have for those initial acquisitions? Sure. So the, the fourplex, which was the, the local one, that one. Um, so I actually partnered with my father on that first deal and that one, we actually put 25% down, uh, which was kind of the best we could find at the time. And uh, you know, you got to remember it's, when we were under contract with that, it, th- that was right in the heat of COVID, right? That was when everything came crashing down. And so lenders were tightening up. And so that was kind of the best we could find was 25%, you know, decent interest rate, but a big down payment. But, you know, again, I partnered with my father, so we split it 50, 50. So it wasn't, wasn't too bad. The cabins, you know, thankfully lending had started to ease up a bit by that time. And one of the huge advantages of getting out of state or out of town even doesn't need to be out of state, but out of town at least is you can take advantage of uh, a second home loan. And that allows you for 10% down with excellent interest rates. So you can only do that, you know, one property in that particular market, right? So that's why a lot of people, when they do multiple markets, you know, you can repeat that process and just do that 10% down. Uh, But otherwise you're one, one of those products in each of those markets. So we did that first cabin with a 10% down. Can we stop to explain that a little bit further? Cause um, so anybody can take advantage of this with 10% down and it's per market is what I'm hearing from you. So if I have a home in town a that I just bought and then I live there, then I can also buy a second home in town A for 10% down. So no. So you would have to be, it can't be the same town, you know, as you live, right. It's gotta be, and I don't, I don't think there's a specific like mileage. Uh, honestly, I'd have to check on that if there's or not it's, but you know, if you got, so let's say for example, like the Smoky mountains, the two main cities there are like Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, you know, they're about 30, 30 minutes from each other. So like if you buy a property in Pigeon Forge with that second home loan. And then you say, Hey, I want another vacation home in Gatlinburg. A lender is going to look at that and say, no, I don't think so. You own this home right 30 minutes away. Right. Yeah. It's, it's got to make sense. Right. Yeah. But if you, if you have one in Pigeon Forge and then you, you know, I don't know what's the town, like Asheville, North Carolina, right. That's about an hour and a half away. Sure. Well, now that's a whole separate Metro. That's a whole separate market. Yeah. That you could get a sec- another second home loan there. Okay. So that's interesting. What are the limitations around that? Like, is it a second home forever or could you refinance that into a different loan product? Are you, are you sure yep. on that? Yeah, you can absolutely refinance it, do everything like a typical residential loan. You know, it is, it is a residential loan. So yeah. yeah, you can, you can cash out refi, you know, into another product. You can take a HELOC. I mean, technically it's, still considered, I think 
for a HELOC, I think it would still be considered as an investment property. So, you know, you got different terms with investment HELOCs versus primary, but yeah, it's the same processes, same everything pretty much as if it was you buying your, your primary home. So it's not really a second home because you can have multiple. It's more of a vacation home product. Right. Right. Exactly. And and you just want to make sure with your banker that you can rent out the home. Right. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got to talk with your lender, you know, be, be upfront, you know, there's no shady, don't do any shady business, you know, but if you're clear with what the intentions are, that it is truly going to have some type of personal use, you know, as well, that it's not just purely an investment property. And typically that's how these vacation rental or, or short-term rental properties are. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of the, the owners want to use them for, for personal use as well. So yeah, you just got to go over the specifics with your lender, make sure that what your intentions are with the property line up with that product. But for the most part, you know, it's a, it's a pretty readily available product. Okay, great. Yeah. I just wanted to stop on that topic because that's something that most people can do. Um, It's really doable. 10% down is great. Right. And so you can continue talking about how you finance those other deals. Yeah. So from there, the, all three other cabins were done with uh, 15% down, just investment property loans. And so, I mean, that's still, uh, those are still conventional loans. So they, you know, do require, uh, you know, a certain debt to income ratio, which I think was 50% was the max on your debt to income. And with those three cat or four cabins, I pretty much tapped it out, you know, so that that's, I'm kind of looking at different avenues right now for commercial loans or loans that don't take your debt to income into, into factor right now. I'm, I'm tapped out, but if you have a W-2 or, or whatever, you have a reportable income on your tax returns, then you can continue to get conventional financing up to reaching that, that debt to income ratio max. And so that's what I did. And that allowed for 15% down uh, loans on each of those uh, three next cabins. And yeah, that's how we, that's the loan products. Did a variety of things for the actual down payments. The fourplex and the first cabin, those all came from savings. And then trying to think the second, the second and third cabins, I had actually taken a HELOC out prior in 2020. I had taken a HELOC out on a single family home that I had, which it used to be my primary. And then when we got married, we moved out, got a, a bigger house and I had rented that one out. And so I was able to get an investment loan or investment HELOC on that house for about 150,000 right before they cut it off. It was actually the day before that bank stopped offering that product anymore because of COVID. Like I literally got my application in the day before. (laughs) Uh, So I used that HELOC to pretty much take care of the down payment on those other two cabins. And then the last one I did, I took out a, a 401k loan, which is another great tool for people. If you have a 401k, you can take out up to $50,000 penalty-free for any reason, right? It's just a a general purpose loan from your 401k. And you you pay it back like normal. If you have a W-2, it's directly taken back out of your paycheck at, at an established interest rate that you pay to yourself, right? And so I did that in combination with some additional uh, savings uh, to finance that, that fourth one. Yeah. Thanks for explaining. There's a lot of different ways to finance these. Uh, I I will say the hurdle is probably a little higher for a property like this than maybe 
the uh, rundown house in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so like for me, when I got started, I was buying $30,000, $50,000 houses. And that's a much easier conversation than what you're talking about. But for those people who want to really jumpstart their journey and like get into the more maybe like classy assets, you know, and uh, more A and B class where you can right. get that, those higher rents, then saving a little while longer, doing a 401k loan, those types of strategies can come into play. Right. And um, so great. Yeah. Can you talk about, and this is something I'm personally interested in, is converting some of those long-term rentals that we've gotten <clears throat> from the Burr strategy and converting those into short-term rentals because my mind says that can be really powerful, right? You already have the house. So just changing it into a short-term should be pretty easy. What are the advantages and disadvantages of that strategy? Sure. Yeah. The first thing you really got to check out is, is the regulations, right? You got to number one, see whatever municipality you're in, or if you're in an HOA, you know, our short-term rentals allowed, right? That's last thing you want to do is go through all that effort. Think you got it all up and running and then get shut down. Right. Uh, so that'd be the very first step is check on the regulations. Second thing would be get on Airbnb, get on Verbo and start scoping out that area. We do with the realtor group and other group of cabin owners that I'm a part of out, out in the Smokies, you know, we call it the, the enemy method, which is basically looking on, you know, Airbnb or VRBO for similar properties, you know, as yours, seeing what they're going for, looking all at, at all the different dynamics. And that's a great way to kind of gauge, you know, the revenue potential for, for your property. So you can do that, that enemy method. You can look at airdna.com, which is another great website has, you know, tons and tons of data and it'll give you guesstimates or estimates of uh, short-term rental uh, revenue potential for a property. If you just type in an address uh, and fill out the information on it. So, you know, do your due diligence on that and, and see if the numbers make sense. Chances are they're going to, if it made sense as a long-term. And then, you know, from there, again, just kind of look at the logistics of the property. For me, like I said, it was, it was converting a, a multifamily, which has a little bit more dynamics than if you're just doing a single family, right? Because now you got to worry about, well, you got shared walls, you've got other tenants there that are long-term tenants. How are they going to react to having short-term short-term guests there. So a little bit more factors to take in consideration. And then, you know, if everything checks out, if it looks like a good area, it looks like there's other, you know, properties in the area that are doing it, that are doing well, you know, there's some type of, tra of attractions that are bringing people to that area. You know, from there, it's really just figuring out what you want that property to be, right? Because you can be I mean, if you look on Airbnb or Verbo, you see the whole spectrum of types of properties. I mean, you see ones that somebody clearly doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't care. And they took pictures with their, their iPhone that are, you know, half dark and you can't even see what the heck you're looking at. Or you have ones that are you know, professional photos that, you know, look really nice, really good descriptions and, you know, you know what they're doing. So you can have the whole spectrum and you can figure out where you want to be in that spectrum, right? You know, maybe you don't want to be the top, top, top. Uh, maybe you want to be in the middle range, you know, whatever. So figure out what you want it, what you want that property to be. If you want it to be some type of kind of themed type property, like for example, you know, that, that one we converted uh, in the fourplex, it's about a mile or so from the beach. So 
we wanted to have it be, you know, kind of a beachy, you know, coastal feel to it. So that's how we picked out the decorations. You know, it's got that nautical theme throughout the the property. You know, that that's really the the basics of it. I mean, uh, you know, renovations. If you want to get into renovations, that's another thing to take a look at, and and really, you just got to think and run your numbers of, you know, what can I make now as it is versus what can I make with it renovated. And how long is it going to take me to to pay that back? And does that, you know, does that meet my criteria for it? Yeah, definitely. Because guests are going to expect it to be furnished and decorated. So you have to weigh that upfront cost versus a long-term rental that you just lease it out empty. Right. And the tenant takes care of everything except a few appliances. Right. And now you're tasked with furnishing it completely, which if you're getting double the rent, and but you have to come out of pocket ten thousand for furniture. I mean, it could be worth it. You just have to run the numbers. Right. So that's exactly. another thing I I wanted to add. How do you how do you budget for your pro forma? How do you budget for that? Because how do you know how many days the property is going to be rented? Right. You kind of know right. your expenses, <clears throat> but how can you budget for your occupancy? Right. Yeah. Good question. Um, so that's where. Kind of similar thing that the enemy method uh, and airdna.com and talking with your realtor and if you can other other owners you know those are going to be the key resources in figuring out that occupancy you know if you're working with a excuse me, a good realtor who is specializing in short term rentals which you know I would highly advise if anybody's looking to specifically get into short term rentals get with a realtor that is specifically doing that you know it is a different ball game. So yeah, find the right realtor. That's going to be key. That person right there is going to be able to tell you your, your bookends, right? Your, your range, you know, this, this property, this type of property should be able to make between X and Y, right? So they should be able to give you that information right off the bat. You know, they should be able to tell you what the, you know, estimated occupancy should be. Um, but from there, you should kind of back check it with those other methods, right? The air DNA, enemy, enemy method, et cetera. Um, and then for me, you know, I always like to underwrite conservatively. So even back it down a notch, like if the anticipated occupancy is 80%, you know, maybe I'm going to underwrite it at 70, right? Because I want to, I want to make sure that if I screw something up, I miss something in my analysis that I, you know, at least I've got a little bit of a, a buffer there. So that's that's the best way to figure out your your occupancy and your projected revenue ranges as well. Right. And so for those people who maybe live in a town where there's not a lot of attractions, not a lot of exciting things going on, like the beach or the Smoky right. Mountains, does do short-term rentals still work in those types of small midtown markets? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's really the cool thing, and it's just growing more and more is that. Yeah, I mean, you can find short-term rentals anywhere. It's funny, actually. I was I was just reading uh, a post on Facebook. Uh, I think it was yesterday that is a similar type question, and somebody responded that, "Hey, when I look for you know an Airbnb property to rent for myself, all I'm looking for is that it's close to water because I want to go fishing, right? So, I mean, that's that's the attraction that that person's looking for. You know, he's not looking for a national park. He's not looking for a stadium, you know, so there's so many people out there. Somebody's looking for something, right? So yeah, you can be 
in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's, it's especially over COVID this, you know, this period, it's become more and more of a trend for this getting back to nature and, you know, disconnecting or reconnecting, whatever you want to call it. So the more uh, rural or, or glamping, you know, that's becoming a, a much, much bigger thing nowadays. So, yeah, I mean, farm stays, you know, that's, that's big. Uh, I mean, there's just so many opportunities out there. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you can just even rent out a room in your house and that, that can be considered a short-term rental, right? It doesn't even need to be the whole property. It can be just a room in your house. The fact that you can do that and do that successfully just shows how much potential there is and how much range of uh, options and, and desire there is for, for this type of market. There is so much potential. Yeah. So this sounds so great and we've painted a flowery picture. What are some of the downsides <laughs> or ugly sides of doing short-term rentals? Oh yes. It is not all roses. <laughs> I can tell you that much. So first off, it is an active form of investment, right? And it's even treated that way for tax purposes as well, uh, which has some extra benefits that that we should touch on maybe after as well. But it's definitely more active. The long-term rentals, as long as you have some decent tenants are kind of set it and forget it, hopefully. Uh, though I got to say my first six months with that fourplex short-term rental was an absolute nightmare. Uh, tenants getting arrested, domestic abuse. I mean, it was just, it was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> but once you get the right tenants in, <laughs> you know, it can, it should go a lot more smoothly. Like you don't hear from them, right? Until, you know, something breaks or whatever. But uh, so yeah, short-term rentals are a lot more active. So it's a daily thing. And I probably spend a little bit more time than, I really need to. I've only been in the short-term market for actively running properties for, I mean, less than a year now. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure things out, figuring out systems and getting those in place. So I work on it daily in terms of checking things, you know, dealing with messages, dealing with vendors, your cleaners, handymen, et cetera. So that's number one is it's, it's a lot more active, right? Number two is you're dealing with people. So you are going to get the not nice guests every now and then you're going to get the extremely picky ones who just are going to complain about absolutely everything. You're going to get the crazy ones. You're going to get, I mean, everything in between at some point. And there's going to be some nights where you're like, why the heck am I doing this? <laughs> you know? But that's with any, that's with anything, Right. You just got to be, you got to understand that that is the business that you're getting into. And that number one, it's, it, it's a business that this is not a hobby. This is a business. Now, if you start getting serious into it and this is what you've chosen, right? You've chosen to provide a service for people. They have expectations and you can't please everybody. Right. And they so, should have high expectations. I mean, the, the rental rates reflect that, right? but it can be. It's, I guess it's more frustrating for the owner if they don't have the systems in place. When Absolutely. when you just click a few buttons or make a few calls, it's a lot easier to deal with those setbacks. And so that's why you know, I would suggest having those systems in place with even with your first oh, uh, rental. You know, I, I made the mistake of not having those systems for my first long-term. And yes, problems come up less frequently because it's a stable tenant. 
but they still come up and um, you can kind of, you can panic or scramble, but if you have those systems kind of almost takes care of itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that's, I mean, frankly, that's the, that's the hardest part of it is, is dealing with the guests, you know, when you have those, those ones that are just unpleasant, you know, in fact, just this past week, I had one of those. (laughs) And you have to, you have an image to uphold. You have reviews. Whereas if you have a bad long-term tenant, you can just forget about them, never see them again. (laughs) Right. And, but you have an image to uphold with, with this type of business. Right. So talk about how you're now up to 10 units and some of them are short-term, some are long-term. Why not just make all of them short-term if the money is much better? Yeah, that may eventually happen. Like I said, we converted that one uh, at the fourplex into the short-term rental. The other three, we still have that plan uh, of doing that eventually. Those three units would require some more, not anything too extensive, but they would require some type of renovation plus the landscaping and things like that. So it's a lot more upfront cost uh, on those ones to get those up and running. And it was just with everything that was going on with me, with these cabins, frankly, I just, I didn't really have the, the mental energy to really put that much focus onto trying to now convert those three. Um, so, you know, my focus right now is on these cabins, you know, and even acquiring more. And once I get to a point where, whether it's no longer having the W2 or better systems in place, you know, where I can free up some, some more time and mental space, then, you know, I think we'll, we'll revisit uh, converting those. But for now, I think it still makes sense. You know, I think it's good to have a a mix, have some diversification. So, you know, have some long-terms, have some short-terms, you know, even my long-term goals, you know, are to really probably get a few more short-terms, enough to get myself in a very, you know, comfortable position, you know, from an income standpoint, and then branch out into, I'd like to get into uh, some larger multifamily, whether it's through syndications or, uh, or partnerships or something. But I think the way I look at it is that the short terms are an excellent vehicle for just for cash flow. Yeah. For, for fast cash flow, short-term rentals are the way to go. I don't know if there's another asset class that that beats it, right? If you do it right. Once you get to that point where you're comfortable on your cash flow, then I think it's important to start branching out and really diversifying yourself, getting yourself a, you know, a stable foundation in in other asset classes because there is a risk with short-term rentals, right? With higher returns, there's always a higher risk. So, I mean, when COVID first happened, the short-term market was pretty much shut down for a couple months. I mean, that came back with a vengeance. Uh, but during that time, I mean, uh, thankfully I wasn't in it <laughs> at that time, but you know, I've heard stories and I can just imagine if that was me, I mean, you don't know what's going on. All your income just dried up overnight. I mean, that that's a scary thing, right? Uh, and you don't know what's going to happen when it's going to come back. So there's definitely an inherent risk with it that you should look at diversifying with something else, uh, whether it's long terms or even, you know, uh, it doesn't have to even be real estate, but um, you should definitely look at other other asset classes once you get to that that point. Yeah, it's great to diversify. Um, you mentioned that word, and that's why you have short term, you have long term. You're getting into multifamily, 
And so if everyone can, can really learn diversification, you know, we hear about it in the stock market world, but it does transition over to, to real estate. And that's something that's honestly held me back is, you know, the city shutting the rental short-term rental market down any moment. And so right. I have to push past, past that fear, maybe start with one, two, and then scale up from there. And you're also, you know, even if you think long-term rentals are the safer way to do it, I mean, you're still taking a chance because um, there could be a mass a decrease in rent or if you're putting all your eggs in one single sure. market there. So we're right. always taking risks. Right. It's just how much of how much risk are we taking and what are we doing to mitigate that risk is important. Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and, and that's where if you're looking into short term rentals, too, uh, you know, we touched on earlier that, I mean, you can do it anywhere, literally. But, you know, looking at markets that are established short term rental markets or tourist markets like the Smoky Mountains, like, you know, Joshua Tree in California is a, is a up and coming place, you know, like the Florida Panhandle. Uh, I mean, if you're looking at markets that have an established industry of short-term rentals, that tourism is the main industry, the risk is mitigated a lot more in terms of any type of regulations that could shut things down. Now, of course, it's not going to have anything to do with a worldwide pandemic, right? But at least in terms of legal regulations shutting things down, you know, you can pretty much kind of count that risk out if you look at those types of markets. Of course, those markets are going to have higher barriers to entry, right? Those are going to be the more expensive ones, but also have the potential for the greatest revenue as well. Well, Kale, it's been an awesome conversation and we're approaching the hour mark. So I want to wind down here and keep it concise. Um, I want to head into the last portion of our show. It's called the triple threat. We ask the same three questions to each guest. And the first one is, what has been the biggest app resource or tool that has been the biggest game changer in your business? Yeah. I mean, from a tool standpoint, it's got to be the phone. I mean, especially with the short term, it's just amazing that you can literally run your entire business from your phone. Just a quick example of how awesome it is, is that actually when I got the invite from your VA to join your podcast, I was actually in Colombia on vacation there. South and America? Yeah. Oh, wow. So we were there for two weeks and it was kind of, it was a vacation. It was kind of a test pilot as well as to how well can you manage something international? And so there were times where I was literally in the tiny little town in the mountains, hours and hours away from any major city and taking care of things. I mean, I, I was literally in a town square in this tiny little town in the mountains, taking care of, you know, coordinating with my cleaner and my handyman you know, to take care of an issue with a, with a tenant or a guest. So, I mean, the power of that phone is, is absolutely incredible. And just to tie into that, I mean, with short-term rentals specifically having a, a PMS or property management software, that's crucial. That will link your calendars between different platforms like Airbnb or Verbo or booking.com or wherever you're going to, you're going to list your property. It'll sync your calendars. There's uh, options for, you know, automated messaging, to be able to try to streamline things through the guests. So having that software is going to be your number one software as well. Yeah, we take it for granted, but 15 years ago, you couldn't do most of the <laughs> stuff we do today with technology. You had to just 
be right next to your property. Oh, they, they call in for a maintenance problem. You got to run over there and fix it. (laughs) It's a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, it's a blessing because you can do almost anything from anywhere, but it's a curse because you're, you're stuck on that thing. You know, you're glued to that. (laughs) That is true. You got to set it down sometimes. Right. Question two, what has been the biggest learning lesson in the last year for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Could be a failure or a success that you had that you just learned from? I think the biggest learning experience and something I'm still learning is the power of relationships, especially in, uh, you know, again, the short-term rentals. And when you're in these very tight-knit touristy uh, communities is that, you know, you've got to build the right relationships and, you know, foster those relationships, you know, with your, your cleaner, your, your handyman, you know, any other vendors that you deal with, you know, other owners, you know, realtors, everybody that you, that you're going to work with, you can really got to foster those relationships because they're so essential to your business and your growth that if you burn a bridge with someone, I mean, it can easily cause, you know, repercussion, big repercussions for you when you're in those, those tight knit markets. So building those relationships, getting your team members and fostering those relationships. Like for example, one thing I'm doing right now, you know, the holidays are, are coming up and you know, we've had to transition our cleaning teams a few times now, since we started, we're on our third and fourth cleaning team. So we have, now we have two cleaning teams for our, our cabins up there. And so we're going through right now and, you know, kind of writing them all, not only the, the owners that we deal with, but the each, every single cleaner that comes to our cabins, we're writing them all personal handwritten letters on cards, you know, giving them some type of gift for the holidays and just trying to, you know, really build that relationship with our cleaning staff. Cause we, they're key, you know, they do the dirty work for you, you know, literally. And it's, it's a job that's, it's hard to find a good one. Right. And it's hard to keep a good one. So that's kind of our goal is to really try to develop and foster these relationships with our, our key team members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how you do that. And uh, it, it's, it's a great way to separate yourself from other investors who maybe aren't doing that because for those folks who are doing that type of work, I know right now, you know, they can be picky and choosy and they have plenty right. of work. So if, exactly. if you're able to take that extra step, show appreciation, then that'll, that can bring them back to you over right. and over. Yeah, exactly. Question three, our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether that's financial, lifestyle, or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? Freedom is having time to do what I want, meaning be able to spend time with my family, be able to travel, not have to live in this kind of Monday to Friday world where you live for weekends or for a vacation. I'd seen a, a quote somewhere that I want to build a life that I don't need to take a vacation from, right? Because I think so many of us, and including myself still at this point, are living a life where you you look forward, you know, you live for those vacations, right? That that one or two or maybe three weeks if you're lucky a year, you know, that you can get away. And I don't want that. I don't want to live like that for the rest of my life. You know, I don't want my family to have to live like that. So to build a life like that, where I don't need to take a vacation from that life, to have that freedom, to be able to 
you know, spend time with my little two-year-old son when he wants to, when he wants to see me, but I have to go take a call or I have to be in a meeting or, you know, this or that. To me, that's, that's freedom, really just buying back my time. I've been selling myself, you know, for so long working in a, a W2 world. It's time to start buying back my time and my freedom. Yeah. Well, you're on your way there. I've heard uh, it doesn't take too many short-term rentals to get there and you're, you're getting there. So yeah. And that's luck to you. Yeah. If I can, I don't know if we have the time, but just real quick is just the, like you mentioned, it doesn't take a lot, right? If you get into the right markets and find the right, the right properties, I mean, you can, you can meet your goals so much faster than you expected. I mean, I met what were for me, aggressive five-year goals in less than a year. And it's, it's just been absolutely amazing what, what the potential of it is. So, uh, you know, some headaches to deal with in the process, but the benefits far, far outweigh that. Yeah. With real estate, you're, you're buying something, you're working to towards something that'll pay you for the rest of your life. Exactly. So, you know, going through a remodel or one bad guest should not stray you away from your lifelong potential. <laughs> That's what I always try to remember when like I'm acquiring an asset and I have a setback. Right. Just realizing like I'm so young and this is going to pay me for the rest of my life or could. Right. Yeah. And kind of puts it into perspective for you. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I got to give kudos to you. I mean, uh, you know, anybody, any other young investors out there, I mean, you know, I just know when I was that age, you know, again, I wasn't, I probably just didn't have that, that vision in my head, you know, to really make those steps forward. And, and, you know, for someone like yourself, uh, you know, who's doing that, I mean, you're just going to be, you know, you're going to be killing it, you know, uh, and, and get to where you want to be so much faster than, than everybody else. So, yeah, I mean, keep it up, man. And, uh, you know, you're going to be crushing it. Thank you. Thank you. Where can listeners learn more about you, um, to, to follow your journey? Yeah. So, uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, just Kale Delaney. Uh, you can find me there. Um, I'm on, I am technically on Instagram. I'll be the first to say that, uh, I am not very good at all about checking it or updating it. Uh, that is a goal, but it is, it is there, which, uh, our handle is, is for our, our properties, but it's, um, mountain MTN two C cabins and cottages, uh, you know, an underscore between each, each one. So mountain to see cabins and cottages. That's our, our Instagram, um, where you can see some of our properties and hopefully we'll try to get updating that a little bit better. Uh, but those are probably the two best ways to, to find me there. Um, and uh, yeah, reach out. Um, happy to happy to help. I actually, had somebody uh, reach out to me uh, this week. You know that had uh, heard heard about uh, on another podcast there. So yeah, it's always cool to help out. You know, and that's one of the awesome things about the real estate is there is so much, so many people willing to help. You know, it's one of the very few industries that I've found where it's not a doggy dog world. You know, there's there's that prosperity mindset, and everybody is willing to help everybody. So you know, feel free to reach out. Well, thank you for providing your expertise in short-term rentals. This is uh, our first interview with a guest on that topic. And so I'll definitely direct everyone who has questions on short-term rentals back to this one because you've, you've uh, described it very concisely and I appreciate that. So Absolutely. thank you for being on, Kale, and have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review and tune in next week for the next episode.